Uh, one advantage of, uh, of sitting up front in the, uh, in the auditorium is you can hear each other sing better. And I just want to say it was a, a blessing to sing together with you these songs. If you're a guest, I know I've greeted some of you already, uh, but I want to thank, thank you for coming. I know that coming to a, uh, a new church uh, to meet new people and to experience um, worship with strangers can be kind of intimidating. And so I want to say thank you for the courage to come out on a Sunday morning and to gather with us and to meet together around God's Word. Uh, I'm confident that God has a blessing for us this morning, not because we're great. If you're a guest here, we, we probably haven't impressed you, but that's okay. We're not trying to impress you, but we have one who is impressive. We have one who has done great things for us in Christ. Uh, God has done great things for us in Christ, and that really is what we gather together to celebrate. Um, so uh, whatever your experience has been in the past of church or trying churches or uh, sitting down and experiencing church, it's kind of like sitting down at a, at a family uh, when they have their, their family dinner, right? I mean, everyone kind of you know, eats, right, dinner, but you just aren't quite sure what you're going to experience you know, sitting around that dinner table together. And uh, what we are looking forward to together is, of course, God's Word by His Spirit to equip and enliven us, to encourage us, to build our faith, and to deepen our joy in the Lord. Uh, so take your Bibles and find your way to Romans chapter 3, the end of Romans chapter 3, and into Romans 4. That's where we'll be looking this morning, the passage that Dave read for us. Our sermon series that we've been in has been tracing the storyline of the Bible from beginning to end, from Genesis to Revelation, this whole story of the Bible, to get rid of the idea. A lot of people look at the Bible and think of it as kind of a collection of moralistic stories for some general takeaways to kind of get ahead in life, but it's kind of all disjointed and there's some general themes that run through it about do good or be better, or be courageous or be kind or kind of those moralism, kind of this collection of religious Aesop's fables. But the Bible is not that at all. The Bible is one story of God and what went wrong in the world, what went wrong in us as a human race, what God is doing to, make all, to, to, to fix all of that, and then what we have to look forward to to come. And so we're wrapping up our time uh, in Romans this morning, and then what we've looked forward to is we'll be looking then into Revelation. That's where we're headed. In the last few weeks in Romans chapters 1, 2, and 3, we've been learning more about what God has done to fix our problem as a human race and our problem in the world. And to put it all into one word, it would be gospel. The gospel is what God has done. And we've been exploring some different terms that are gospelese, things like uh, redemption and righteousness. And here's a big word, right? Lots of syllables. Propitiation, okay? We looked at that last, last week, how God has satisfied his righteous wrath for sin in Jesus. Justification being declared by God to be accepted by him, to be righteous. We've learned all of that. We've learned all of this is true for the sinner who comes to God with the empty hands of faith. And therein is another key term, faith. What is faith? In fact, faith is talked about in the Bible a lot, right? No, not a newsflash for any of us. And there are some startling promises that are written about faith. Like in Matthew 17, where Jesus says, man, if you have just a little bit of faith, you can, you can say to this mountain, move from there to move to here. Now, I don't, I don't um, suggest any of you go out and try that right now and try to move Mount Evans around, but that's a startling statement, isn't it? Or when Jesus says, or no, when the author in Hebrews, in Hebrews 11:6 says, it's, it's impossible to please God without faith. No matter what you try to do to please God, if you don't have faith, 
God is not pleased. And so you, you walk away with from verses like that and you think, man, I want faith. Give me a lot of faith. This sounds like it's important. And yet there's a bit of a mystery sometimes around what faith is. Or maybe you feel disturbed because you lack faith. You're doubtful. You're, you're, you're discouraged. You're trying to, to reconcile the, the horrors of our sin-cursed world with the message that you hear in God's word about his love and his mercy and his compassion. And then a preacher has the audacity to tell you to believe that faith. And you're trying to reconcile that. Well, what is faith? And we can look into Romans 3 and we can see some of what faith is in, in the book of Romans. In fact, the word faith comes up often in chapter 3 alone. In chapter 3, verse 20, we're told, By works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. And in verse 28, he says, For we hold that one is justified by faith, apart from the works of the law. So what you find here is that Paul is teaching us some about what faith is by giving us contrasts. Here's what it's not. And one of those contrasts is it is not works. It is not what you do. It is not something that you earn or achieve. It's not a work that you do. That is not faith. And then there's another contrast, and that's where we're going to spend our time together this morning. Beginning in verse 27, Paul brings up another contrast. You see it there? He contrasts faith against boasting. And I'm going to qualify boasting. Selfish boasting. He contrasts faith with selfish boasting. If you see in chapter 3, verse 27, Paul is asking a question. And it's as if, he says, okay, he's making the case that we are brought into right relationship with God. That's justified. That happens through faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ. It's not done by our actions or by our merit or by our hard work. If that is true, Paul, It's like Paul assumes that his readers are going to be asking a question, and that's why he brings it up here in the end of of, uh, in in verse 27. He says, "Then what becomes of our boasting?" He assumes his readers are going to be saying that. What 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 is our boasting then? If that's what if if what you say is true, Paul, if we don't work for being brought into relationship with God, having our sins forgiven, and being accepted by God, then where's our boasting? And that Paul asks that question because he knows the condition of every human heart. Your heart, my heart, every human heart. And this condition is we like to feel good about ourselves because of ourselves. (laughs) We do. We like to feel good about ourselves because of ourselves. Or we like to feel good about ourselves because what we can hear others tell us about ourselves. So in other words, everyone wants to boast in themselves. We all do. Okay, now... You don't, you don't have to squirm there because this is our shared condition that we all have, okay? Now, any of us is exempt from this. We just have varying degrees of how much we're aware of this in each other, okay? But it's true for all of us. That's true in Paul's day. It's true in our day. Uh, in fact, it was true even before Paul's day. We can go all the way back to an Old Testament example of this in 1 Samuel 17. And this is a story where Israel is uh, being uh, overtaken by the Midianites. And God comes to a guy named Gideon. Some of you might have, are familiar with the, with the name Gideon. He comes to Gideon and he says, Gideon, I, I'm sorry, I've jumped ahead of story. First Samuel 17 is David and Goliath. We'll get there to Gideon in just a second. I'm too excited. Um, in First Samuel 17, you have King Saul and his army are in a stalemate because the Philistines, different group of bad guys, okay? Uh, the Philistines are there and the Philistines have a champion. You know his champion's name? 
Goliath, right, right, okay. And Goliath is a big dude. He's nine foot nine inches. He wore bronze, a bronze helmet, which was not light. He had a bronze scale on his armor, heavy stuff. Uh, that, the armor weighed 125 pounds alone. And the tip of his, the iron tip of his spear weighed 15 pounds on its own, okay? Big dude. He comes out and he says things in 1 Samuel 17. He's shouting out to the ranks of Israel, why have you come out to do battle against us? You losers, is basically what he's saying. I defy you and your gods. Me and my gods, we'll, we'll destroy you. He's coming out and doing that, and he does it day after day. First Samuel 17:10, the Philistine said, I defy the ranks of Israel. Give me a man that we may fight together. Comes out, and we're told in verse 16 of 1 Samuel, that for 40 days, Phil, the, the Goliath comes out and marches out and boasts. Just keeps boasting. And of course, the story is that David shows up to make kind of, he's Uber Eats, right? David shows up with some cheese and bread and gives it to his brothers and he hears what's going on here. And he's like, this, this is terrible. This guy is boasting against, up against God. He's defying the glory and majesty of God. And, and so David finally gets um, a, a permission to go fight Goliath. And many of you know the story, right? Even people that don't know the story, the story of the Bible well have heard about David and Goliath because we all love the underdog story, right? And David goes out there to challenge Goliath. He doesn't go out there with armor and swords and spears. He goes out with a sling and some stones. And Goliath sees David coming out, and Goliath says this, and when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him. So boasting and disdaining are related, by the way. When you boast, you're disdaining something else, right? He's boasting in himself. He disdains David because David was just a kid, a youth. And he was a good-looking, handsome kid. He wasn't like a gnarled warrior, right? And he, says, and he says to David, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. And the Philistine said to David, Come to me and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. Boasting. And you're like, oh, wow. And of course, many of us know how the story ended. God conquered, overthrew Goliath through the simple acts of courageous faith from David and brought about a miracle in the deliverance of Israel in that day. In our modern-day context, we don't really have Goliaths going out to the battlefield, but just take that analogy and move it to the sports field, whatever sport you might want, rugby or American football. or right. You've got teams that are going out, and what do they do before big matches? Sometimes they boast in what they're going to accomplish, and they disdain the other team. Right? They don't have receivers that can match ours, or our offensive line is, you know, whatever it is, there's boasting going on. This is a strategy that we use. We kind of give ourselves pep talk. Sometimes you boast to the mirror. Have you ever done that? Maybe you've got something big going on at work, and you look in the mirror and you start, what do you do? You give yourself a pep talk. What are you doing? You're, you're boasting, right? You're trying to get confidence in life. That's a strategy that every single human heart has, and it's also a strategy that's wrong with our human hearts. Our sinful human nature wants to save itself, and we are bothered by anyone that says, you can't do it, I've got to do it for you. We don't like the feeling of being weak and being unable to deliver ourselves. We live in the nation of the free and the brave and we can do this. And we sometimes bring that into our religious type of thinking. And that's what we see in the book of Judges. There we go. Here's Gideon. Okay, ready? Right? God comes to Gideon and says, I'm going to deliver Israel through you. I'm going to do this. And Gideon doesn't think that this is really doable. Gideon's not kind of a great guy. He's not really a powerful leader. He's full of insecurities and doubts. This is the guy that says, God, if you really, really, really are going to do this, then 
here, make this fleece wet and then puts it out and it happens. And okay, now God, if you really, really mean that, then he reverses it. And God is so patient with Gideon and he does these miracles. And eventually a big group of fighters, an army forms to, to, to do this campaign to overthrow the Midianites. And he gathers around Gideon and God sees this horde of this, this army, which was just a little drop compared to the bad guys, okay, the Midianites. The Midianites had armies that you couldn't even count, all right? And the Lord says to Gideon in chapter 7, the people with you are too many. They're too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand. Imagine that. Change the analogy. Imagine if we had some major capital growth campaign. We're going to build something and we want to raise money. And God comes to one of the elders and says, whoa, to the elder team and says, hang on now. You have too many millions raised. I cannot let you build this. We would kind of scratch our heads, right? Why? Do you see this? It's on screen here for you, is it? Yeah. Um, the people are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand. Why? Lest Israel boast over me, saying, my own hand has saved me. That's our problem, <laughs> right? So what does God do? He systematically reduces their army. And 22,000 of them leave. All right? Anyone scared? Anyone doesn't want to be here? Anyone that's kind of second-guessing? 22,000 of them leave. Right? And there's 10,000 left. So now you'd be thinking, okay, we've, we've pruned it down. We're good. In chapter 7, verse 4, the Lord said to Gideon, the people are still too many. <laughs> It's easy to laugh at this. I would not want to be Gideon in this moment, right? Would you? There's still too many. I'm going to test them from here. I'm going to say you can go. And what happens is the result is in verse chapter 7, verse 7, the Lord said to Gideon, okay, you've got 300 left. Now we can get busy. We read stories like this and we kind of blast past them and we don't put them into our modern day context. Just imagine if this was, this was what happened. And here's the reason. Of course, God knew that if there were too many, that we, with, because of our nature, because of our pride, because of our boasting in ourselves, we would say, we've done this. And God says, you don't. You don't save yourself. And I'm going to prove it to you. And time and again, through the, through the story of Scripture, you see God's people in massively, I mean, they're, they're in big trouble. And they don't have nowhere else to turn, and God is the one that delivers. The whole idea of boasting is the underlying belief and the bent of our soul where we think, I can do it, I can get it, I'm strong enough, I'm good enough. And a lot of religion is based on that. A lot of religion is that. A lot of religious organizations even, churches, so-called churches, are just mutual admiration societies that are kind of, kind of shellacked over with religious sayings where we all kind of come in and go, man, we are so good. We have done so well this week. Here we are again, serving God and doing good and giving money and, and being better than all those rascals out there that aren't here with us on Sunday morning. And we boast. But the Bible is telling us that every single soul makes its boast in something. And here's the problem. We like to boast in things like our smarts or our beauty or our looks or our athleticism or our strength or our achievements. And we look at that and say, I did that. But we forget that really it's all gifts from God. You were born with those talents and gifts. Sure, you worked hard to develop them, and you, but man, how many breaks did God give you? How many lucky breaks, so to speak, happened 
to coincide and, and intersect in such a way that it gives you that result, and yet we kind of feel like we've done this. No, we didn't. What do we boast in? What do you boast in? Everyone boasts in here. Everyone does. Even people listening online. We boast. What do you boast in? Some in our, it, these are the things that it's easy for in our culture to boast in. Our money, our power and influence, our beauty, our smarts. All those things that we might say, this is why I'm valuable, this is why I'm worthy of love. You boast, what you boast in is why you think you're worthy of applause and praise. It's your glory, it informs your identity, and it gives you significance and value in life. And you're like, okay, come on. So what? What's the big deal? Everyone does it. So come on, get off our backs, man. But here's the problem. What it means for us today is our soul knows and your heart knows that the world is a battlefield. It is. It's a battlefield. You've all been living in a battlefield. How are you going to survive the battlefield of life with confidence? That's where we boast. Because there's all sorts of things that are, that are attacking our confidence in life. And so we've got to give ourselves pep talks or we look for pep talks from those around us to give us strength. How are you going to respond when you're attacked, when you're criticized? How do you defend yourself? How do you deal with life in those moments of that battle? Well, sometimes what we do is we boast. We say, well, I, okay, that didn't go so well, but I'm a good father or I'm a good mother. Or look at my children. Or look at, look at what I've done in the past. Or look how talented I am. Or look, look at how great of a leader I am. Or look at what, you know what they said to me about what I wrote or what I said or what I did. Or maybe you're moralistic and you go, I'm a good person. I go to church. I obey God's law, mostly. I, I'm a fairly moral person. Or maybe you boast in, in your people, your tribe, your group, you, you find value and significance because you're part of an important, really incredibly important political cause and you're really doing good in this world and, and you're part of a group of people that care about others and you're moving them forward in, 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 in amazing ways and so you feel good. You boast. You see, we're all looking for something to cheer ourselves on or we're looking for other people to cheer ourselves forward so we can find courage and bravery in this world. And God says, no, don't do that. You're not justified by your work. You're not. And that's what you see. See Romans 3.23? Really, it's a very simple phrase. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Listen, all of your good works are constantly falling short of God. They are. But another reason that we shouldn't boast is because selfish boasting disdains others, and that's a sin. That's a sin. It's not loving others as ourselves. It's impossible to try to boast in yourself without having to it's just, it's going to happen. You're going to start putting other people down. That's one of the ways we get distance between ourselves and others to find the room to boast. That's what we do. We're clever sinners, by the way. We can do this even in religious ways. <laughs> Think about it with me this way. Right? I, this, really, I, I had to let this text kind of go through my own heart. We can, be, we, can be re, we can be proud that we're not proud. You ever been there? <laughs> Sorry, I, I shouldn't laugh. Okay. Are you with me? We're clever, right? We can, be, we can be like, I am so glad, I am so good that I'm better than they are. And we don't realize the rottenness of our souls that would make us say something like that. Or maybe we think that we're good and we go to church, we study the Bible, we obey the Bible, our doctrine is just right, we're not one of those people that get it wrong. Well, thank God that I'm not the people that have wrong doctrine. And we become self-righteous about our self-righteousness. <laughs> We become proud about our lack of pride, but all the time we're proudful. We can become 
We can almost have this competition of, you know, God's grace is really poured out to me. Oh, yeah, well, let me tell you how bad I've been and how much grace I've gotten from God. <laughs> right? Well, guess what? Sometimes we can boast how little we boast. <laughs> None of us are exempt from this. And when we disdain others, we're not loving them as ourselves. It's a sin. So what are we going to do? Where can we find rescue from this innate desire to boast in ourselves, this desire, desire to save ourselves? This is what motivates a lot of religion. All the major religions of the world are motivated by self-salvation, except Christianity, except true biblical Christianity. All of them are. Hinduism, Buddhism, Islam, they all give you a path or, or a, a thing to do or accomplish or steps to, to go through for this higher ascendancy or this, this greater experience or this, this next step of this achieving transcendence and forward. And Christianity turns it upside down and says, you are such a bad sinner, nothing will save you short of God himself coming to earth and dying in your place to rescue you from your sin, from your treasonous rebellion against God. Christianity is unique in that way. What are we going to do? Well, don't boast in yourself. What are you going to do? Boast in God. Boast in God. So that's what Paul is saying in chapter 3, verse 27. When he understands, listen, if it's really true that we can't work ourselves into God's acceptance, then what's going to happen with our boasting? And Paul says, it's excluded. It's gone. But maybe not entirely, and I'll, I'll tell you why. Our self-boasting is excluded. And, and that, that's how amazing the gospel of Jesus Christ is. It's almost too good to be true. Really, it is. You're saying, the Bible is saying, that you are forgiven of your sin and you're brought into relationship with God not by means of anything that you do. None of your religious works or track record is what accomplishes that reality. That's exactly what the Bible says. None of it. You come to God with the empty hands of faith. Now somebody might say, well then, where's the motivation to do good? Well, you, Christian, that you're just going to be a bunch of like sinners that say, man, I'm okay, I can just kind of you know, say, God, forgive me, you know, and I can go do what I want. Wrong, because if the only reason you do something good is because you're afraid of the consequence, that means that your relationship is primarily based on fear. God doesn't relate to us primarily on fear. Now, there is a fear of the Lord that is appropriate, but God relates to us in love. He's given us himself. He sacrificed himself. He died for us when we were sinners. And when love becomes the motivation in your relationship before God, that is far deeper, far more powerful than the sense of, man, I better do this, otherwise God's going to be upset with me. Which, by the way, when we get into that relationship with God, if I do good, then God will do good for me. That's transactional, that's meritorious, that's wage-based works. That is self-salvation. We'll get to that in a second. Let me keep going here. Paul then, okay, what he's saying here seems hard to accept. And so what Paul does when he moves on into chapter 4 is he gives an example to prove his point. You're not rescued by your works. You're not. He uses Abraham as an example. He says, what shall we say was gained by Abraham, right? The father of faith. Father Abraham, right? Okay. Let's try him out. What does the scripture say? Abraham believed God. Look at chapter 4, verse 3 of Romans. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Paul quotes from Genesis 15. Paul's not making this up. 
He says, come on, I'm going to prove it to you. Here's what it tells us what happened to Abraham. He believed, and God gave him, God counted him, God declared him as righteous. So in other words, we're accepted by God, not through, Abraham was accepted by God, not by what he did, but simply by believing, faith. Again, it sounds too good to be true. And, and by the way, this idea in, in that he's quoting in chapter 4, verse 3, which is a quotation from Genesis 15, this counted, that's a, a, a ledger type of term, a Greek ledger kind of a word. It's borrowed from account books. And what it's saying is like this. You check your bank account tomorrow morning and you have $100 million in your account. Okay? Do they let you do that? Right? Can you put $100 million in someone's account? If you all want to try that, just let me know. I'll give you routing numbers. You wake up, you got $100 million, and you're like, okay, where did this come from? And you call the bank and you say, I really don't want to report this, but I probably should. I think there's been a mistake. There's $100 million in my account. And they say, oh, no, it was credited to your account. And you're like, but I didn't earn this. I didn't, I, I mean, and they said, no, it was credited to your account. You see what happens? When it's credited to your account, it becomes yours to spend. Jesus' righteousness was credited to Abraham's account. Now it's Abraham's to spend. So, saving faith means you're boasting in Jesus, his life, his death, his resurrection. When we embrace and treasure Jesus, that's what faith is. Embracing and treasuring Jesus, his life, his death, his resurrection. We are in essence saying everyone else gets their praise from other people or from their acceptance from doing something. But I get my praise from God in Jesus. That's saving faith. Remember, there's endless ways that we try to self-justify, where we try to get praise. Sometimes we do this through relationships, right? The one thing we want is that, we, that, we, that we think will make, that will be so important, that will, that will make us feel complete is if some person, some beautiful or impressive person, loves us. Then we will feel accepted. When that person looks at you with that, with that look of love and smiles at you, or that is the feeling of praise and applause and acceptance in your heart, you feel important and accepted. You feel righteous. Now be careful, because if you think, all right, you say we're not supposed to boast, so that means we're supposed to kind of be self-deprecating and kind of be putting down on ourselves. Anyone compliments us, we say, oh, no, I'm terrible. Don't compliment me. And, and we're just kind of all kind of, we should kind of be reclusive so we don't have to put up with everyone's praise around us, and we should just kind of be monkish and, and deflect that and move it apart. No, 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 don't, don't think that. Christian, Christians are not emotionless Stoics. We're not. The problem here that Paul is talking about is not that we feel a need to be accepted. That is part of who we are as created beings. The problem is all of the godless ways we go about trying to find acceptance. We try to work our acceptance. We try to earn our acceptance. We try to achieve it. We try to be it. We try to hear it from others. Accept God. Everyone is thirsty for this internal sense of praise and acclamation and honor. We crave this praise as much as a person dying of thirst in the desert craves water. That's why Jesus said, If anyone's thirsty, come to me, and I will give you everlasting water, Jesus said. This thirst in our souls. You see, the need is not wrong. It's the godless ways we go about trying to satisfy that need. You do need acceptance. You do. One day your, your earthly life will be done and you're going to be, when that moment happens, what's going to be on your mind, even if you are not a religious person, 
you're going to be still wondering, have I lived a good enough life to be accepted by what's coming next? So what does it then mean to, be, to boast in God? Well, we have been probably thinking along the lines of boasting in God means we boast in the $100 million he's put into our account. Right? Jesus' life, his sacrificial death, and his resurrection, these things that, that Jesus did that are now credited into my account, and now I have righteousness to relate with God. Not a righteousness of my doing, but Jesus' righteousness. I'm, I'm writing checks on Jesus' righteousness as I relate with God now, accepted by God. I mean, how are you going to walk into God's presence? How dare you? Well, we're like, hey, man, Jesus, I've got his righteousness. And God's like, okay, come. We often think of it that way, but um, again, I said that the term that Paul uses, well, that the author of Genesis used in 15 that he quotes here in chapter 4 was that, there's that ledger term. I don't know what comes to mind when you think of ledgers and accountants. Do you think of like boring and dusty and dry? Do you? Okay, right? And I know it's, tr- it's a problem because sometimes we think, well, that just seems like justification is kind of boring and dusty and dry. Hang on, there's more to it here. We need to realize that being justified by faith is more than just an accountant thing happening. What it means, what it results in, is that we now have God's praise and God's applause and God's acceptance. We have the praise and applause and acceptance that God the Father gives to Jesus. <laughs> Did you hear that? Think about that. So, imagine being in a sports arena. All right? How many people fit in an, in an ordinary like football stadiums. Anybody know? 70,000? I mean, Big Blue's got 80,000, right? College stadium, so that's already bigger. Are there bigger ones than 80,000? Yeah? 100,000? 110,000? I know it sounds like you're at an auction now, right? <laughs> how, how many people? Anybody know? 110? Someone right there? Okay. Imagine that everyone... Every seat in this stadium of 110,000 is filled and you are the person walking on stage. They're there to see you. I don't know what your talent is. You're like, some of you are thinking, I can't be singing or I can't be this. or what, I don't know what it is, okay? You're there. You walk on stage and all 110,000 people stand to their feet and roar their excitement to see you. Okay? What would that feel like? How, can you imagine? Some of you are saying, some of you are introverts, and it's like a nightmare I just took you through, right? <laughs> Paul is saying this. Listen, 100,000 people cheering for you in a stadium has got nothing on God, Creator, cheering and applauding and praising you. Nothing. Nothing. I mean, the Bible talks about the voice of God like a thunderous water that would make a stadium, that would drown out a stadium of people. And that's what we have when we are justified by faith. We have, we have Jesus' 100 million in our account, and it's not just dry and dusty money to be spent. It means that the praise and approval and applause that God the Father has given to Jesus is what we have in Jesus. Friends, when, when, when a soul embraces this, it changes a person. It changes you. 
what it does is it, it, it gets rid of your inferiority complex. It starts to chip away at that, right? We all, are, we all have an inferiority complex in some ways. But when we realize, man, God, God praises me in Jesus, not because of what I've done. It gets rid of the inferiority complex and it destroys pride because we're not receiving God's praise because of what we have done. We didn't earn our way there. We didn't paint a picture and God looked at it and goes, wow, that's amazing. I didn't... <laughs> I'm so glad I made you and I'm so glad I discovered you. And No, we stand, we receive God's praise because of Christ, because of his righteousness being given to us. And you say, well, then how do we, how do we experience that? How do, we, how do we live in the reality of that? And we'll finish with this. Just simply want to understand it this way. Salvation by grace through faith, this idea of faith, right? This embracing and treasuring of Jesus, receiving his righteousness into your account knowing that now you have God's praise because of what Jesus has done. Okay, how do, how do we live in the reality of that? Remember what it cost to justify you. Remember what it cost to justify you. That will work against our, my, yours, everyone's innate desire to save ourselves. Right, I mean, honestly. Well, I'll just keep moving. Romans 4.3, what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, it was counted to him as righteousness. And now Paul continues on with that story. He says, verse 4, Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him, there's the contrast, who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. So when he talks about here with Abraham, what's going on here, he's referring back to a story in Genesis chapter 15. And I've referred to that when it says that he was counted to him as righteousness. What did Abraham believe? It says Abraham believed. What did Abraham believe? Well, here's what happened. God had made promises to Abraham. I'm going to bless you. You're going to have a... All the nations of the world are going to be blessed through you and your descendants. Problem is, Abraham didn't have any descendants. And so Abraham says to God, God, you, you've promised me these blessings. You've said you're going to do that, but how do I know that that's going to happen? It hasn't happened yet. What do I have to do, God, to get this to happen? And God answers Abraham in a surprising way. And now this is going to sound so weird, okay? And if you are thinking that religious people are weirdos, I'm going to just, I'm going to prove your point even more so here, telling you the story from Genesis 15, okay? So please, don't just get up and walk out. Hang on with me, okay? God's going to prove it to him in a weird way. Now this is weird to us, but it wasn't weird in Abraham's day. He says, I'm going to, I want you to take some animals. Okay, I've already lost some of you, right? And I want you to sacrifice them. Okay, I know some of you have fur babies that you just are upset with me now. I want you to cut them in half. I know it's getting worse. And I want you to line them up, and then I want you to walk through those, those animal pieces. What in the world? All right, we, you all, we do weird things, okay, when we ratify contracts. How many pages did you sign when you bought your home? Okay? Um, there, that was how it worked, okay? That was, it was a cultic, covenant, contractual type of ceremony that God is referring to that would have made perfect sense to Abraham. And what was happening is it was a visible representation of, okay, there's a contract that was going to be between me and you, and we're going we're to ratify this in blood. And it's going to cost us by sacrificing some of our possessions, the, some animals from our, from our, from our livestock, uh, from our, our herds. And we're going to do this and we're going to walk, you're going to walk through basically saying, if I breach this contract, let, 
let the curse of breaching this contract, which is visibly demonstrated with the blood of these animals being separated, be on me. That's what was happening. Is it a little less weird now? You're like, no. But that's what was happening in that, in that picture, okay, in Genesis 15. We sign papers, we get notarized seals, okay, we do things differently today than then, but that's what was happening. And God says, okay, I want you to do this. Prepare this contract to be, to be ratified in this way. And so he takes the animals, he does it. Now, Abraham would have been expecting God to say, now Abraham walked through those animals. Ratify the contract. That's not what happened. We are told, okay, we are told that what happens is, and this would have been shocking to Abraham, Abraham, he didn't say Abraham walked through what happened. Instead, what God does is he comes to Abraham in a, in smoke, in a visible pillar of smoke, and God's presence moves through those animals. And God says, I am going to keep this covenant. I am going to expose myself to the curse if this does not happen. If I don't come through, let the curse be on me. Abraham, if you don't come through, let the curse be on me. I am going to ensure that this contract comes to pass. That's what happened. And perhaps that is where Abraham, when this happened, that Abraham with the eye of faith realized God fulfilling his word of promise, he is going to accomplish it. I'm not. He is going to bring this about. I'm not. He is going to ensure it happens. I'm not. And that's what God did. And by the way, that's exactly what God did for us in the gospel of Jesus. So please, if you haven't listened to anything yet in the sermon, hear this. That's what happens in the Christian gospel, right? When Jesus was Christ was in heaven, he was experiencing infinitely God's praise, the Spirit's applause, Father and Spirit and Son, Father and Spirit, applauding and praising and celebrating Jesus and the triunity that existed be all eternity past. This was Jesus' experience and what Jesus did is he gave up all that adoration and he, everything that the human heart wants, this approval, this, this acclaim and this praise, he left it and came into this world where he got mocked and jeered and hit and struck and beaten and made fun of and falsely accused. Jesus Christ went to the cross for you and for me. He was forsaken so that you could be accepted. He heard the curse of the law, depart from me, I don't know you, so that we could hear, well done, good and faithful servant, come. This is what Christ did. He who had the name above all names, right, became one of no reputation so that we could be called the sons and daughters of God. That's justification by faith. And when we see this, when we embrace this, when we accept this, it changes us. When your hearts are convinced that God delights in you, not more or less because of your track record, but because of Christ, that sets you free. Your soul embraces these things, and what does is then you boast in God. You boast in God. So, this kind of boasting has practical ramifications. In Galatians 6, Paul writes about boasting in a different way. He writes about it like this. Trying to take this from just theory into practice. Paul says, far be it from me to boast, right? 
That's Romans 3. What about our boasting? It's excluded. Paul says, man, his boasting is excluded except this, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, which would have been very difficult for, for Paul's present-day Greco-Roman readers to accept because the cross, moms and dads, if you had to walk into a Roman city where there was a cross out of the city, where there was public executions taking place, you would be covering your kids' eyes and saying, don't look, don't look. And Paul is saying, listen, I'm not going to boast except here in the cross of Jesus. This gruesome, sacrificial death of what Jesus did. Why? Here's what it does. Here's what the cross does for Paul. By which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. How so? Well, here's how it was put together for me that just stuck, and I'll I'll give it to you. How does it crucify the world? Remember, we're all looking for acceptance and praise, right? We all have this inner thirst. And where do we look? The world. We look to the world, which is why we become religious workaholics or religious helicopter parents or moralistic and fill-in-the-blank. Paul is saying, listen, he doesn't boast in anything except Jesus because boasting in Jesus, it diminishes, it demotes, it removes the power of the world upon us because we have God's praise. The world says, be rich and famous. That's been crucified. How? I have God's approval. How? How do you get God's approval? And I worked a whole, I worked 60 years to get Wall Street's approval. How did you get God's approval? Faith in Jesus. Faith. I received it as a gift. Empty hands of faith. That's what Paul is saying here. By which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. And as this works itself into the nooks and crannies of our hearts, less and less as we grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus, less and less will we want to run to the world to find our acceptance. Less and less. And more and more we'll be generous with each other and less and less will we be proud and will we try to demean each other to find, find that we're better. Less and less will that happen as we grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus. And what happens is then we as a family of Christians, as a, as a church, a community of God's redeemed people, what happens is we relate and love and enjoy each other because we've been accepted by God in Christ and the world around us says, why are you all getting along so well? You guys put your kids in different schools and you vote differently and you, you, you believe differently on some of these issues, but yet man, you get along and you like sacrifice for each other and love each other and put up with each other and what's going on? And we say, justification by faith in Jesus Christ. We have the roaring approval of God in Him. Friends, that'll change you. That'll change you. I'll ask the music team to come up and get ready to lead us in our, in our last song. I'll ask you these questions. Do you know this kind of faith? Do you know that kind of faith? I'm not saying do you just understand topics from the Bible, truths from the Bible. Have you embraced this in your heart so that it's changed you? What do you boast in? What did you boast in last week? What are you boasting in today? Do you know how to look at the things of this world and say, you're good, but you're not ultimate. You're good, and I'm thankful. I want to work hard. I want to be a good parent. I want to, yes, there's, there's a place for that, but it's not ultimate. What's ultimate is the roaring approval of God, his praise in Jesus Christ.
This is why Paul writes, he quotes from Psalm then, in verse 7 and 8, when he says, Blessed are those blessed. Again, religious word. What does that mean? Happy. (laughs) I mean like happy. Like when your team scores the goal in the last two seconds of the game and you jump up and cheer. Happy. Happy are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. How does that happen? Through faith in Jesus Christ. We are justified by faith. Would you bow your heads? I'm going to ask you to give a couple minutes of quiet reflect, a couple moments of quiet reflection, and then I will lead us in prayer before we sing our last song.